Good to see you all tonight. Whatever your day was like, good or bad, we trust the Lord is going to make it a good evening. And that he'll speak to us through his word. I have decided to follow Jesus, we were singing. I remember some years ago they had a campaign where everybody wore a little lapel pin or button. Just like in the book of Acts. <laughs> you know, in the book of Acts, all the Christians walked around with little buttons on, saying, smile, God loves you, or something. <laughs> well, this campaign, you see, they had this little thing that was, said, try Jesus. Try Jesus. Now, I should be fair, because it could be that what they meant by that was, you tried everything else in life. Why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you listen to the gospel? Why don't you give Jesus a chance to show you? That might have been what it meant, but it sounded an awful lot like when you go to the grocery store. You still call it that around here? Supermarket? I don't know what you're supposed to call it anymore. And you go and there's this young woman standing there with a plate, and it's got cheese on it or olives or in Spain it might have or something and the idea is you're supposed to try it to see if you like it just have a little bit try it and of course if you don't well get a little bit of Jesus try a Jesus sample nobody said that in the New Testament did they I have decided to follow Jesus. It's not trying him. It's not trying him on like trying on shoes or anything else. I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, I better change gears here because that's not my study for tonight. But it's a very inviting topic. Let's leave it at that. We're in the book of Luke. We're thinking about the life of John the Baptist. We're sinking a shaft in Luke chapter 1 to go in and mine out as much as we can. And we read most of the applicable verses last night. We'll read fewer tonight, but we do want to review some. And so we'll read beginning in verse 13. Luke chapter 1 and verse 13. The word of the Lord says, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now come down to verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people through the, by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Let's pray. We once again, Heavenly Father, come into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks for him. We remember that you've told us that whatever we do, we should do in his name. And so we meet in his name and we come and invoke his name as we study the scriptures. We know that we need something beyond human wisdom. That we need to come and drink the pure water of heaven as it comes out from this crystal spring of the word of God. And not to mix it with men's ideas, but simply to come and drink that pure water from the word of God. And so we pray that you would speak to us. You would refresh us teach us, correct us, challenge us, encourage us, do whatever you see is needed in each heart and life. And we say with that child Samuel so long ago, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. To our forefathers, the Christian faith was an experience. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. To our generation, it is a convenience. And to our children, it is a nuisance. Someone said that many years ago, and it's still true. To our forefathers, an experience. They lived it. They knew the Lord. They followed him by personal faith. Their lives were changed. They knew what it meant. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. They got it from their fathers. They were the second generation. To our generation, it's a convenience. We not only have in our generation today convenience stores, we have convenience churches. And tailor-made Christianity, if I may use that word. And to our children, it is a nuisance. And many of them grow up to prove it as soon as they're able. Turn their back on it and go out to live in the world that taught them how to have fun. And make a wreck of their lives. The Christian faith to them was not real. It wasn't even a convenience. It wasn't even an inheritance and much less an experience. This is a situation, as we were thinking last night, that we found the nation of Israel in. Although we know that there was a faithful remnant of believers, but the nation as a whole 
And in many ways, we drew the parallel, the evangelical community, and in many churches and families today, there's a lot of inheritance and convenience and nuisance and very little experience. And it was against that backdrop of dark and difficult times in the nation of Israel and 400 years without hearing a word from God that the message came to Zechariah in the temple that day. It was into that environment that God sent a little boy and raised him up to be the prophet of the highest. And into that world and that condition, God sent his son, our Savior and Lord. Last night we were considering the childhood and the home life. We began to consider it and we we hope to finish it tonight because chapter 1 has a lot to say about that. You notice that when chapter 1 finishes, it says the child grew. John the Baptist is still a child. He's growing into manhood when the chapter finishes. And so we could say that the chapter, this first chapter, which is 80 verses long, except for the first five verses and that middle section that talks about the conception of Mary, the angel's visit to Mary and her conception, except for that section, the first chapter is taken up entirely with the information that we're given about John the Baptist. And so we understand that the Holy Spirit, by taking up this this quantity of verses and all of these things that he's explaining in chapter 1, is trying to tell us something. He's focusing on things about John's family and childhood. And last night, we considered how his his parents were the kind of people who could raise a child to be a servant of God. And God is still looking for homes. He's still looking for parents who are willing to raise their children for God. And most Christian parents today, or parents who call themselves Christians, raise their children for the world. Mr. McDonald wrote a little booklet that's not too popular. I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere if I tell you the name of it. And before I do that, let me remember the other night, the first night when we talked, I spoke to you about the, uh, the character studies, the man who wrote character studies, and I told you the wrong name. I figured it out later on that evening when I went back to the room because I have one of his books about Elijah there in the room. His name is F.B. Meyer. It wasn't Andrew Murray. So if I sent some of you off on a wild goose chase, you'll excuse me for being forgetful, and you'll remember now to write that down, that if you're looking for character studies, Books about characters in the Bible. It's F.B. Meyer and another man who wrote and he preached for many years in England. And all of his uh, sermons are compiled into maybe one and maybe two volumes now. And they're called Bible Characters by Alexander White, W-H-Y-T-E. Excellent reading. Any of those character studies by F.B. Meyer or Alexander White. I'm sorry, you can't watch them on television. You have to read a book. And I hope some of us... Still know how to do that. (laughs) Well, we said that John the Baptist was born to parents who were righteous. They were both righteous before God. And we discussed the problem that we have in many homes today. It says they were both righteous. Walking, both of them, and all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, both of them. And we talked about the danger of raising children in a home where both parents are not committed, where one is more committed than the other, where one is a believer and the other one isn't. 
doesn't profess to be, or maybe does profess, but is faking it. In one, in the heart of one burns love for the Lord. There is a hunger for the things of God. And in the other, there's coldness. And they're always saying, well, why do we have to go to meetings? And why did the meetings last so long? And why this and why that? Their heart is not there. Well, children, we said, are not stupid. They observe these things and they pick up on it. And I'll tell you something. Children are the best psychologists. They are the best students. They do it naturally. Students of character. And they can tell you exactly where the weak points and the strong points are of the different members of the family. It just seems to come natural to them. Or else, why would it be that when a child wants to do something, it's questionable whether one of the two parents will tell him he can do it? Uh Uh-huh. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? (laughs) How do they know which one to go to? Daddy, can I go out and ride my bike around the block? Sure, go ahead. Honey, I told him yesterday he couldn't do that. Oh, I didn't know that. Ah, but he did. And so in my family, when we began to raise children, we came to an agreement that whenever a child would come and ask one of us if they could do something, The first thing we would say would be, in my case, I would say, have you asked your mother about that? And what did she tell you? And if we went to her, we would say, have you asked your father about that? And what did he tell you? Whoops. And there was a penalty for trying to manipulate or play one parent against the other. Well, it was a happy home, the home of John the Baptist, where... He had parents, and some of you children, some of you young people may complain about your parents. But I'll tell you this, if you have godly parents, you'll learn one day, sooner or later, you'll learn to thank God for parents that fear the Lord and that are righteous. They were both righteous before God. They both, that was their position and their conduct. They walked in all the commandments and ordinances. The children were constantly seeing before them an example of how to live Christianity. Well, it wasn't called Christianity in those days. We'll say how to live a life of godliness. And so it wasn't theoretical to John is what I'm trying to say. He saw it. There are models. And he didn't have to go off somewhere to some school or someplace way across the country. His own mother and father were models of how to live and walk the Christian life. How important it is for us as parents to think about our own spiritual condition. And some of you say, oh, but I'm not a parent yet. And I say to you, well, you wake up because you got a chance at making a head start. you got a chance at getting an earlier start and getting a handle on the problem that some of the rest of us had to play catch up or still playing it. The sooner you're concerned about your godly character and behavior, the sooner the better. As one lady in Spain said, most people pay more attention to their face in the mirror than they do to their character. They spend as much time working on their character as they do putting on makeup or changing their arrangement of their, of their uh, exterior that people look at. If they spend as much time on the interior as they do on the exterior, things would be really different, wouldn't they? And I thought about that and I said, you know, that's right. It's exactly right. And then he went on to say, and some people spend more time on their garden and their flowers than they do on their character. And I said, well, you're right. 
But here are people who lived before the Lord, righteous, and walked in all the ordinances, the commandments and ordinances of the God of the Lord. They were righteous and they were blameless. But not only that, they were people of prayer. And that was our third point that we were coming to last night. And that's where we want to come to now in verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. I love those words. Thy prayer is heard. We have a God who hears prayer. But God doesn't always have a people who pray. Why pray when you can worry? Did I say that right? I said it the way a lot of people, I did it on purpose, don't worry. I said it the way most people, a lot of people, behave. Why pray? Well, all we can do is pray as if it were a last resort. There's nothing else left. We've already tried complaining. We've already tried manipulating. We've already tried organizing. We've already tried everything we can think of, influencing people. And we've tried it. And our bag of tricks is empty. So now all we can do is pray. That's a wonderful condition to be in. I wish we could get there more often. Thy prayer is heard. God hears prayer. I told you, didn't I? See, this is what happens when you start getting older. You forget where you told your stories. So you just smile if I already told you this one. (laughs) Charles Wesley, the brother of John Wesley, who dreamed one night. He was the one who composed a lot of hymns. You know, He dreamed one night that he was taken by an angel up through this huge warehouse somewhere like in heaven. And there were all these boxes stacked up from the ceiling, from the floor to the ceiling. And they had people's names on. They were closed boxes. He didn't know what was in them. And the angel wouldn't say anything. He just led him up and down the aisles and showed him all these boxes. And then he took him out. And finally he said in his dream to the angel, he said, what are all these? And the angel said to him, these are the answers to prayers that people never prayed. And then, and then he woke up and it was a dream. He told us. Thy prayer is heard. If you can pray, God can hear your prayer. But God can't answer prayers that we don't pray. But God doesn't always answer prayer instantly, does he? Sometimes he makes us wait. Sometimes he answers differently. And sometimes, because he loves us, he just has to say no. If my child were to say to me, I want to stick my finger in the electric socket, I would say no, because I love him. And sometimes we pray things that if God were to allow us to have the answer of our, to our prayer... It wouldn't be for our good. It wouldn't be for our benefit. It would harm us, actually, or harm someone else. And so he says no. And sometimes he says no because he has something better for us. And sometimes he gives us an answer different from what we expected. And sometimes it's just as we prayed. But this we have to learn. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that's what he did. Thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, And thou shalt call his name John. And Zechariah said, praise the Lord. He should have said, praise the Lord. Sometimes we don't even believe the answers to our prayers. (laughs) He says, how, verse 18, whereby shall I know this? 
for I am an old man, and my wife is well stricken in years. How can this prayer be answered now? You know what? It seems as we read this that many years had gone by since Zacharias had prayed this. And we think perhaps he was still praying it. But whether he was praying it or not, even if he had left off praying it, God had not forgotten what Zacharias had prayed. But God's timetable is not our timetable. He answers in his time and according to his will because prayer is not for the purpose of helping God to agree with us about the things that we want. Prayer is for the purpose of helping us to agree with God about the things He wants to do. Doesn't it say that in Matthew? When you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many people have said that and told a big fat lie to God in prayer? They don't want God's will to be done. The only reason they're praying is because they want their will to be done. And they're willing to torture people around them with their behavior and, and withdraw themselves from you and force things to happen and anything until they get their way. Because my will is going to be done. Well, you can't pray like that. The Lord said to pray, thy will be done. And so prayer is a submission of an inferior will to a superior will. Prayer is the agreement of one who is short-sighted with one who is all-knowing. And prayer is an act of faith and trust. When we commit things to someone who knows more than we do, who's never made a mistake and who can work them out. His parents were praying people. We sing about it. But Zacharias prayed about it. You see, there wasn't anything else he could do. He had two problems. Elizabeth was barren. He told us that uh, back in verse 7. And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. They were too old. They were past that stage of life. And she'd been barren all of the years when she was a young woman and could have uh, conceived children. She couldn't conceive children because she was barren. She wasn't capable. But they prayed. You see, that was considered a problem back in those days. Today, that would be considered a blessing in many places because uh, fertility today is considered to be a problem, a sickness that you take a pill to cure or a danger. And so you give the young people pills when they're in middle school and high school so that they can do whatever their carnal lust desires and not have to suffer the consequences. You give them a pill. And we throw pills at problems. And we throw pills at depressions. And we throw pills at so many things when God gives us prayer. And David Wilkerson, I don't often quote him, But he said, why don't we pray more? And he said, in my opinion, it's because we don't really believe it works. And why don't we trust God with difficult things in prayer? He said, because we're afraid that he won't answer and that our faith then will be exposed as vain. He said, we're afraid to ask God to do things in prayer. Well, I think he had a point. 
Here's a man whose wife was barren. Here's a man whose wife was an older woman now. She was in the what we call in Spain, the, in Spanish, the third age, la tercera edad, the, the retirement age, the golden years. And he was too. He wasn't any spring chicken. Faith can be illogical because he's still trusting God. And maybe he supposed that God had already given him a no. But didn't he get a surprise that day? Didn't he get a surprise when God said, thy prayer is heard? Maybe there's somebody here tonight who's been praying about something. And you're tempted to give up because you don't know what the answer is. You don't see an answer. And you think maybe God isn't going to answer. Remember this, God hears your prayers, and God will answer your prayers in his time and in his way. You don't worry about God carrying out his part of the deal, his half of it. He's almighty and all-knowing, and he never fails those who trust in him. Thy prayer is heard, he says. And do we teach our children to pray? Do they see us pray? Now, I don't know if my mother's going to like this. She's here tonight, but I'm going to talk about her anyway. I remember when I was a little boy, when she, had, she wanted to pray, she would go into the bathroom in our house. It was the only place she's raising children in the house, all four of us running around, and who knows what we were doing. The only place she could have any privacy to pray, she'd go into the bathroom and shut the door and pray. So she could get to a place where she could be alone and pray. Well, I remember that. That made an impression on me when I was growing up. When I went to see my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, every night when I stayed at their house, I can still see it as if it were right here. A sofa, by a green sort of sofa by the window. And they would get kneeled down right there and pray. My grandfather and my grandmother, and they'd get me in there between them like a little baby chicken or duck. Right in there between them. And my grandfather would pray and he would pray for the neighbors and pray for the family and for all of their children. For Just pour out his heart to the Lord. And then my grandmother would pray. And then pretty soon I'd get a little elbow. Go ahead and pray, son. I didn't know how to pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the flowers and the bees. And I think about it now and I think, well, that was ridiculous. But it wasn't ridiculous when I was a little child. It wasn't ridiculous when I was growing up. It was the first exercise of a very important lesson in life. And I couldn't have learned to pray as a young person by reading a book about prayer. That wouldn't have impressed my life and led me to pray as a six, seven, eight-year-old. What impressed me and taught me to pray was seeing adults who prayed. John the Baptist had praying parents. He had righteous parents. He had blameless parents who kept, who obeyed the law of the Lord because they loved God. And they wanted to honor him. And he had parents who prayed. And he himself was one of the answers to prayer. How important it is for us to teach our children to pray by letting them see us pray. What's the first thing we do when difficulties come up? Is the first thing we do throw our hands on our head and say, oh, no, and wail and lament? Is the first thing we do become angry? Is the first thing we do go into despair and become desperate? 
Have they ever seen us just stop and say, well, let's just commit this to the Lord right now. And just bow your head right there where you are and pray. And just turn it over to the Lord. To be praying people. And if we don't pray, you know what? We will raise prayerless children. If we don't exercise faith in God, then the faith that our children might have in God will only be as hypothetical and hypocritical as it is in some of our lives. And that's an awful way to raise a child. In a nation that's concerned about child abuse, they ought to be concerned about this kind, spiritual child abuse. About twisting and warping and turning children away and leading them in a path that is totally against what the Word of God says by our own behavior in the home. And if there's a father here tonight who's not a righteous and blameless father and a man of prayer, you better put an end to that tonight. You better come to the end of yourself. Give yourself up to God. If there's a mother here tonight that is not blameless and righteous, not a woman of prayer, whose example in the home is not an example of godliness and righteousness, then you need to say, Lord, right now, change me. It's got to stop now, here and now, before I do any more damage to myself, to my marriage, to my family, to my children. It's got to stop now. Thy prayer is heard. What did he pray for? He prayed for a child. Are you sure? He prayed for a child. Oh, Lord, give us a child. Is that what he said? Did he take it a step further? Do you pray for a son? Not just a child, but a son. To serve as a priest, maybe. Did he pray for a son? Did he pray for a prophet? Did he dare to pray that the Lord would give him a child that could serve him? How many of us have prayed that and how many of us raise our children to serve God? Most of us raise our children to be comfortable in the world. We want them to be doctors and lawyers. We want them to be investment bankers. We want them to have a nice, comfortable job, to live a comfortable life, to have everything they need. That's what we're concerned about. What about raising our children to serve the Lord? What about the spiritual needs in the world around us? What about teaching them to live a life, raising children who can live a godly and a holy and a separated life, who can have lives of spiritual power? But all too often, what we want is the same thing our unsaved neighbors want for them. Except we want them to go to church on Sunday. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And God had already picked a name. Thou shalt call his name John, which means God is gracious. But we don't know what he prayed for. Maybe we'll ask him when we get to heaven. Maybe we won't need to. I don't know if everything's going to be instantly answered. I think the Lord's going to leave us some topics for conversation. <laughs> We're not just going to stand there and know everything about everybody and everything. We will know as we are known and we'll be different. We'll be changed. We'll be like him. And many things in that instant of time, I think, will have their solution. But I know there's going to be opportunities to talk and maybe we'll just go up to Zacharias and we'll say, I'd like to ask him right now. I don't know if I'd like to when I get to heaven, but I know at least right now I'd like to say, Zacharias, come on, give it up. What were you praying for? And how long did you pray? And had you given up? Because sometimes God waits. And just when we think 
He's not going to answer, and we give up. The answer comes. Someone said in prayer, we're just like those little children who ring the doorbell and then run away and hide before someone answers it to play a prank. You know, that we pray, we ring the doorbell, but we don't stand there and wait for the answer. He got his answer. God didn't answer Zacharias' prayers all those years. Because if he had given him a child way back then, it wouldn't have been the blessing that he gave him when he did answer his prayer. He could have given him a child. Could God have given Zacharias and Elizabeth a child? Of course he could have. And why didn't he give it to him back then? Because he has something better. He's waiting. He's waiting. The time isn't right. The time when God sent forth his son into the world. That time had not come yet. And Zacharias prayed and he asked for something that God wanted to give to him, but it wasn't the right time. And so God made him wait, and God made him wait. And when that time converged with the time in God's plan, when that one, the messenger, promised in the book of Malachi was going to be sent into the world, God answered Zacharias' prayer. God had something far better for Zacharias than what he ever could have dreamed of. And so we could say in some way, too, that prayer is prenatal care, isn't it? Here's a child who was prayed for before he was ever conceived. His conception in itself was an answer to prayer. And his life and his ministry, an answer to prayer. So John the Baptist had this tremendous blessing. He had parents who were righteous, parents who were blameless, and parents who prayed. And what about us? What kind of parents do our children have? And those of you who haven't had any yet, what kind of parents will your children have? It's time to go to work on that right now. But there's something else before we leave as parents we have to talk about, and it's the secret of why they were the way they were. I haven't told you about that, but it's right here in the text. The secret of John the Baptist's parents' godly lives. What do you think it is? It's right here before us in the text. I'll tell you what I think it is. Back in verse 6. Two words. Before God. They were both righteous before God. They lived in the presence of God. Look at verse 8. It came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God. He mentions it again. But this is the idea. That his parents lived before God. Or as we were told in the Old Testament, that passage that says, Thou God seest me. Someone had to learn that a long time ago. God sees us. They lived before God. They lived their lives, we might say, conscious that they were open and transparent before God at all times. They didn't play, like we say in Spain, with two decks of cards. One's, one set of cards, one deck, uh, one set of behavior and conversation for when they're in public and in meetings and in front of people, and another deck of cards, another set of behavior and rules for when they're alone. They live before God all the time. And this is the secret, one of the secrets you can say of godliness is to realize that you and I are before God all the time. I don't know who the country singer was who wrote that song so many years ago. No one knows what goes on behind closed doors. But I'll tell you this, 
It ain't true. You can shut the door, but God is, is in there and he sees everything. You can go to the most desert place and you can be out of touch and turn off your cell phone and nobody can see you and no one can check up on you, but God can. They live before God. And so, before we do anything or say anything, we need to remember this. God sees me. And I can hide from my parents, but God sees me. And I can play with two decks of cards before them, but God sees me. And I can do it here, but God sees me. You can fool men, but you can't fool God because we are before God all the time. And those people who have lived lives of godliness, of piety, and who have had spiritual power have been people who have learned the lesson that they lived before God. They're not playing games. They're not playing Christian. They're not playing church. It's not role playing. It's not some kind of entertainment or social activity. It is the atmosphere in which they live. God sees me. God hears me. I want to do what pleases Him. He's here with me. I want to consult Him. What should I do? Walk in the Spirit, the New Testament says, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? Walk, it means your conduct. We talked about that before. Let your conduct be in the Spirit. Everything we do and say, we should consult and be sensitive to the control of the Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit. Conduct yourself according to what the Holy Spirit wants you to, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it can't be an afterthought. This is the way they lived. Not like those people in Matthew chapter 6 who, when we read about them, it says they gave their alms in public to be seen of men. They said their prayers in public and on the street corners to be heard, to be seen and heard of men. They were before men. They're what we call today people pleasers. They're always worried about who's watching them and who's seeing them and if they're putting on the right face and if they're saying things the way that pleases everybody else. Let me tell you something. If you're concerned about God, if your behavior is pleasing to God, then your behavior will be pleasing to all godly people and that's all that really matters. That's all that really matters. What did Elijah say in the Old Testament? He said, The Lord of hosts before whom I stand. He was standing in front of Ahab the king when he said that. But he said to him, The Lord of hosts before whom I stand. Elijah, that great prophet in the Old Testament, and John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He stood constantly in the presence of the Lord. He was aware that God saw him, that he was his messenger and his servant. And this is what God wants for us. That when we speak or when we act, we might be able to say, The Lord before whom I stand. He sees me. And he knows me. And this is the way John the Baptist's parents lived. It says they were both righteous before God. It would have been a lot easier to please people in one sense to just do what people expect them to socially or religiously. Because people can be satisfied in that sense without seeing a deep interchange in the real person, the character, the heart of the person. But God sees the inside of us, doesn't he? Not just the outside. And it says they were blameless before God, righteous and blameless 
before God. This is a wonderful truth for us to get hold of tonight. What are we when no one but God sees us? Who are we when no one but God sees us? What are we really like? Because what you do at home and how you behave in private, that's who you really are. You are not who you want people to think you are in the meeting. You are what you are when no one else is looking. Because God is looking. Always. The secret of a life of piety, the secret of a life of godliness, is to live in the presence of God, before God, to be conscious of Him. And you know what? If we don't do it, our children won't learn it. Not only will we fail to walk in fellowship with God, but we're going to leave our impact, our imprint, on the children that we're raising. You don't realize what I'm saying. That God is not asking you simply to be a man who doesn't drink and gamble and who's not a member of the mafia. God is not saying it's enough for you to not do this and not do that and not do that. And that if you raise your children in a nice, clean home and you don't get involved in any of those vices, you're doing all that anyone can ask. God is not saying that, man. Listen to me, woman. God is not saying that. He's saying He needs for you. He wants for you to be righteous and holy. For you to be blameless. It's not enough for you to say, I don't do this and I don't do this. What about your faith in God? What about your love for God? What about your commitment to Him? If you don't have that, you can't give it to your children. And you try to have a casual, not too committed, balanced out, mellowed out Christian faith that really is void of anything that you see in the New Testament. And you're not on fire for God and you don't love Him. You're in danger of reproducing yourself in your children. It's bad enough that you have to stand before the judgment seat of God one day and answer for your behavior. But it's worse when you have to answer for how your behavior affected the people in your family. I look at this and I say, as John grew into manhood, he could really be thankful for his parents. And may we be the kind of parents that as our children grow up, they'll be able to say, thank you, Lord, for righteous parents. Thank you, Lord, for blameless parents obedient to God. Thank you, Lord, for praying parents. Thank you, Lord, for humble parents who live before God and who practice the presence of the Lord in their everyday life. And the last thing about John the Baptist's parents, they were full of the Holy Spirit. To be filled is not like a glass. It's half full, three quarters full, one quarter full. It's not talking about filled like that. It's that same word that comes up in other places in the New Testament. It says they were filled with rage. As Stephen, for example, the martyr. And they ran on him and they dragged him out and stoned him. It means whatever is controlling the person at that time. They were controlled by rage. And they flew off the handle, you could say. And onto Stephen, they dragged him out and they martyred him. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. It's not talking about having a warm, fuzzy feeling come over you. That's what you get when you spill your coffee or tea. That warm feeling. You know? We're not talking about that. 
We're talking about something that's very practical. It's not walking up and putting your hand on somebody and saying, boo, and they fall over and faint. That famous verse in uh, Acts chapter 30 that talks about being slain in the spirit. And some of you are not following me. You don't know Acts only has 28 chapters. I'm saying it's not in the Bible. They were full of the Spirit. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the first one, well, if you're reading the passage, the first one that shows up in the passage is John himself, the child. Verse 15. He's not conceived yet, so it's first in the order of appearance in the passage, but not first in the order of time, probably. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. So John is full of the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. When you come down to verse 41, when Elizabeth is with Mary, it says, It came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist's mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when you come down to verse 67, where you have John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, it says, finally, when the child was born and he said, his, he wrote, his name is John and the spirit of God opened his mouth and it says, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. The son, the mother and the father, a family full of the Holy Spirit. Wasn't that a family? Wasn't that a family? Can children be filled, be controlled? Can young people be controlled by the Holy Spirit? Live under the control of the Holy Spirit. Mothers. Fathers. According to this passage, everybody in the family, nobody escapes. And why was Zacharias last? Because even though he was a godly man, a God-fearing man, a man who obeyed the scriptures and a man who prayed, he wasn't perfect. And he made a bad mistake. He doubted God when God answered his prayer. And because he did that, And God can't reward doubt. He rewards faith. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, for the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please him. And so Zacharias had to learn a lesson. He failed at that point. God wasn't finished with him. He was still working on him. And maybe that's happened in the life of someone here tonight. Maybe you think back at some point in your life about some... Some time, some point, some moment when you failed to believe God and to trust God about something. Well, God is saying, as he speaks to us through the life of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, that God is not in the process of rejecting us and flunking us out of school. He's in the process of working with us and teaching us. And Zacharias came to that place. He said, his name is John. Now, how did he know his name was John? Because the angel had told him that. And in those months of her pregnancy and his silence, he learned this and he probably kicked himself a thousand times. He learned to believe what God's word is when God declares it to him. And he said, his name is John, or he wrote it. And that was the end of the lesson. Well, the angel had already told him, you'll be... Dumb, you won't be able to speak until these things come to pass. But his faith had rebounded. He had learned his lesson. You see, and God isn't through with us. And even though we fail and stumble sometimes, 
God comes back and He works with us and He's given us that opportunity to come back and say, it is what God's Word says. It is as God's Word says. I take sides with God. I renounce my doubt and my unbelief. And I believe what God has said. This is the way it is. Because the Word of God says it. And my friend, my brother, that's all you need to do tonight. My sister in Christ, that's all you need to do to come back into fellowship with God is to say, it is as God has said. God was right all the time and I should have believed him the first time I heard him. That's it. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? We must believe God's word and let it control our lives. And this is the example we have in the parents of John the Baptist. But you know, as we keep on reading in the, in the first chapter of Luke, we find out about his training at home, not just about how his parents were, but it tells us things about his training. He was trained at home. And that's the job of parents. We talked about that last night. We're not raising hogs. I could have chosen a, a less violent example. I could have said hamsters, maybe, or, or something. But, you know, it just came out that way. The Scripture tells us to bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, you hear what I'm going to say. The Scripture does not say for the church to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The Scripture does not say for the Sunday school to do it. Am I against Sunday school? No. The Scripture does not say Awana can't, is, is supposed to raise your children. Or the young people's group. The, the Scripture doesn't say that. Am I against those things? I'm not talking about being against those things. I don't have an agenda. Except to say this. That God says it's our responsibility. And I look at that and I have to take it seriously. Me, I'm a father. We have seven children. I'm supposed to raise my children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's my job. That's not the public school job. That's not the private school's job. That's not the church's job. That's my job. And brother, if you're a brother, a man who's a believer and a father, that's your job. And sister, that's your job. God said for us to do it. And in many places in, in the Christian world, in the evangelical world today, the family has fallen apart. It's under severe attack because parents have abdicated and abandoned their responsibility to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And some of them can't do it because they're not believers. Some of them can't do it because they don't love God in the first place. There's no real burning love of God in their love for God in their heart. And others haven't done it because we've allowed ourselves to become distracted and confused by the world around us. It's an awful thing to look at the condition of so-called Christian families today. It's enough to make you get down on your face on the floor and weep before God. The pitiful condition of so-called Christian homes. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament, God told them in the home to teach their children. He said for those parents, he said, you will speak, the word of God will be. And he told them that it was going to be on their hands and on their head. And he said, it will be on the post of your house. And he said, you'll speak of it when you lie down and when you rise up and when you walk out. He said for the parents to speak of the word of God to their children. 
and to teach it to them. And John had a father who was a priest. This is something about his training at home. His father was a priest. The book of Malachi that we were looking at briefly our first night says in verse 7 of chapter 2, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God sent prophets. Occasionally there were prophets. Not always. But God did send prophets. But there were always priests. And the priests, besides the offerings and the sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle, were charged with this responsibility before God. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. They should seek the law at his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And don't we believe in the priesthood of all believers? Don't we say, at least, uh, with our theoretical uh, correctness, that one of the great uh, pillars of the Reformation besides justification by faith, was the priesthood of all believers and that it wasn't uh, anything that belonged to a, a class, the priestcraft of the Roman church. It, all believers were priests. But if we really believe that, it doesn't mean all believers are preachers. But this is something that it does mean. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. If you're a priest... Before God, you better know what his word says. They should seek the law at his mouth. You better be the kind of a person you should be. We should be. I'm including myself. That people will come to us to ask us not so much about current events, but about spiritual things. We know too much about the world and too little about the Bible. We're walking encyclopedias of useless information many times. Things that occupy our lives and our attention that have no importance and no value at all in eternity. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. But you departed out of the way. You caused many to stumble at the law. You corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. He had to reprove them. And I said before, and I'll say it again, history repeats itself. And if we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. So he had a priestly father, which means he had a father who, since we already know he was a godly man and he walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, we know that Zacharias was a man who taught, who knew the word of God and taught it. He taught it to other people. He spoke of the law. The priest's lips should keep knowledge. Zacharias' lips did. He was a godly priest. The people should seek the law at his mouth. That was the case. And Zacharias himself was a messenger of the Lord of hosts in that sense that he knew the written word of God. And we have to ask ourselves, do we know the written word of God? And I have to ask you, have you read the whole Bible? It's scary just to go around... uh, Christian assemblies and and homes and ask people and to see how many people have never read the whole Bible. They never sat down and done it. How can your lips keep knowledge? Why is it that we know more about all the current movies and the past movies 
and the movies from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? Why is it that we know more about sports and more about politics than we do about the Word of God? Some people, when they open their mouth, could come out a complete discourse on investment banking and portfolios and the financial future and the fine workings of the financial mechanisms of the nation. These people know nothing about the Word of God. They, they fall silent when it's time to talk about the Scriptures. And we're not saying you shouldn't study and know your job and do a good job at whatever your job is. But we're saying this. There's something more important. And that it should occupy our hearts and our minds. Back in the old days, before television became so popular... And I've told some of the men this, I believe, at the men's seminar. There used to be an article of furniture in the home that some people don't know what it is anymore. The reading lamp. See, there was a chair in my grandfather's home. And he w- it was in the corner of the living room. And he would sit in the chair and he had a table on the right-hand side of the chair. And behind the table was a lamp that came over. And that was called a reading lamp. Because his activity, he didn't have a television in his home. And his activity was when he sat down in the evening. I mean, it wasn't the only thing he did. He had a garden. And he had a slingshot. He kept the dogs and the cats out of his yard with it. <laughs> I mean, he was a normal person. You know, I'm not, I don't have a faulty memory about him, I don't think. But he, when I saw him do this, he would take his Bible. And he'd have a commentary of some kind or some book about the Bible. And he'd have it on the table here. I still see him with those glasses on and he's reading the Bible and then he'd stop and he'd pick up the book and he'd read whatever chapter in this book until he came to a verse that was quoted in there and he'd put that down and he'd pick up the Bible and look up the verse. You know what? Men like that in those days had something to say when they came to the Lord's Supper. Their hands were not empty. Their baskets were not empty. In Deuteronomy 16, it says, No man among you shall appear before me empty-handed. You don't come to the Lord's Supper to get. You come to give. And you don't, come to, you don't go to a birthday party without a present. And you don't present yourself before the Lord to worship Him with nothing in your hands. But if we stay up on Saturday night late watching the movies and going to the games... And we're filling our lives with work and play and not with the Scriptures. It's no wonder some people don't have anything to say. They haven't put anything into their hands or into their hearts all week. And it's no wonder, never mind about the meeting, it's no wonder that some of us find it so difficult to pray, to know what to say in prayer before God. Listen, dear believer, the Scripture is the language of prayer. When you know the Scripture... The scriptures themselves, as you read them and meditate on them, they teach you. They give you the language of prayer. They teach you what to say and how to express yourself to God. But the television will never do that. The Internet will never do that. Nintendo and Xbox and whatever the Game Boy and whatever the rest of them are, they're not ever going to do that. And as far as I'm concerned, I know you won't do it. As far as I'm concerned, you can take all that stuff and go throw it in the dumpster. Parents who know the Word of God and teach it to their children. Do you have a family time to read the Scriptures together? 
Do you teach the scriptures to your children? That doesn't mean you have to sit them down, especially when they're small and have short attention stands and pull out the screen or bring down the automatic screen and get out your laser pointer and have a 45-minute lesson on the meaning of the Hebrew word holiness and all of its uses in the Old Testament. We're not talking about that. We're talking about five minutes. We're talking about something geared to the attention span. But we're talking about in the book of Deuteronomy also. Not just the planned time, but the unplanned time, the spontaneous time. When you rise up, when you sit down, when you walk, to bring the Scripture into your conversation. How are you going to do that if you don't read it? How are you going to do it if you don't know what it says? He had a priestly father who knew the Word of God, who meditated on it, who taught it. And John had the blessing of having a father who could teach him the Word of God. And today we need parents who can teach their children the Word of God, who know the Word of God and who talk about it. And it's not everybody get up and run their separate way. There's got to be some time at the breakfast table, at the lunch table, at the dinner table, in the evening, or sometime to sit down and have the family together. A lot of homes, they don't know what it means to have the family together. You don't have a family. You have a boarding house. You have a hotel where people just come and go like ships that pass in the night. They don't know each other. There's no family structure any longer. It's not like what it was in the Word of God. And our danger and the mistake we're making today is that we think that's okay. And it's not okay. And we're going to reap the sad fruit of that in the lives of the generations that are growing up now. To our forefathers, it was an experience. To our fathers, an inheritance. To our generation, a convenience. And to our children, a nuisance. Don't ever forget that. Because you're the only one who can break that cycle. It's got to be an experience. A reality to every single one of us. It's not a tradition. And it's not a convenience. And I hope God... To God and pray that it's not a nuisance. And the mother, Proverbs 1.8 says to attend to the, the law of your mother. To listen to your mother. Because mothers teach their children too, don't they? Mothers have to know the word of God too. And there's a wonderful place to train up a young life right there in the home. And I'm going to tell you something. When they get into school... And they're eight hours a day in school. And then they come home and they're watching television. And, but they only watch 30 minutes, right? You're going to try to convince me that they only watch uh, the news and the documentaries. That's what people always say. Uh, do I, is my face, don't answer this. Does my face really look that dumb? <laughs> well, I only watch the news and the documentaries. So they're watching these hours of television and they're playing the game. Boop, 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 boop and all of this and halo and shooting and killing and all these demonic looking figures running around and shooting at each other. They're doing all of this stuff. And then you think that you can bring them down here to San Ramon Valley Bible Church for two hours a week or three and that's going to solve all their problems. When they got eight hours times five, they're spending in the world being educated and being in constant contact with all the ideas and the behavior that's in the world around us. And then they're looking at the television, and they're hearing on the radio waves all this other stuff that's against what the Bible is teaching, and you think you're going to fix that with two hours on Sunday? 
Wake up. It ain't going to happen. Our homes are supposed to be some place that's like a safe house, a fortress, a refuge from the world. And a place where children can be not only loved as they should be and given affection, but they should be taught the ways of the Lord by their mother and their father. And if you haven't been doing that, you need to tell the Lord tonight. I'm sorry, Lord. I haven't done what you told me to do. And I'm afraid for my children. And I want things to change. And I don't want it to start tomorrow. I want it to start tonight. We're priests. And we need to know the word of God. He had the vow of the Nazarite. John did. His training at home, not only by his father who was a priest, but his training at home as a child was he had the vow of the Nazarite on him. It says that. He shall be a Nazarite. Didn't we read that? I'm still back in Malachi. I've got to turn back to Luke. He shall be a Nazarite. Verse 15, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink and shall be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's, even from his mother's womb. To not drink wine or strong drink comes from Numbers chapter 6 where we have the description of the Nazarite who was a person in the nation of Israel who was especially devoted to God. And there were certain things that they didn't do. Certain legitimate pleasures and things of life that they didn't enjoy because they were totally devoted to God for that period of time that they were a Nazarite. And John the Baptist, from his birth, was one of those. The Nazarite vow was a vow of separation. And to a lot of people, that's an ugly word today. What was it? Separation. We're talking about being separated from the world, being not conformed to the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. These are the teachings of scriptures. These are not my teachings and my words. And these are the teachings of the New Testament, not the Old Testament. So don't give me that stuff about the God of the Old Testament and the law and being under the law and all of that. Because that's not where that is. That's in the New Testament. Come out from among them and be separate, the Lord says. Be not conformed to the world. The Phillips translation says, don't let the world around you press you into its mold. And how many of us can say we have faithfully followed that instruction? We shouldn't teach our children to imitate the world. They shouldn't find their heroes in the world. You know what my grandmother used to tell me when I was growing up? Stop reading those comic books, she said. That's the world's imitation of the true heroes of the Bible. You don't need the Green Hornet and Spider-Man and the Hulk and all that stuff. You need the heroes of the faith in the Bible. Those are real. Those are not made up. Those are not invented. They're not imaginary. It's not fiction. Those are real men and women who lived and saw God work in a miraculous way in their lives. And God wants us to be like them. God's not trying to make people into Spider-Man. But 
We teach our children to enjoy and imitate the world. Oh, and to go to church on Sunday. Be holy is the forgotten command. A.W. Tozer said, people want to be happy, but God wants them to be holy. He said, the problem with us is our highest desire and, and goal for achieving in this life is to be happy. And God's highest desire and goal is that we be holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. He wasn't talking just to missionaries or church leaders. It's written to all believers. William McDonald called it the forgotten command. He said, as far as most people are concerned, those words be holy might as well not even be in the scriptures because people ignore them completely. In Pilgrim's Progress, that great work of John Bunyan, when the pilgrims walked into that city called Vanity Fair, you remember immediately... The author tells us how they knew that they were pilgrims, that they weren't from the city of Vanity Fair. They had three distinguishing marks, their speech, their dress, and their companions. Or you might say in today's language, they weren't wearing little shirts that showed their belly and navel to everybody and pants so tight you could tell if they had a hair on the mole on their leg. People who grow up without any perspective, they don't have any historical or biblical perspective to them. The world they grew up in, where people dress and behave this way, seems normal to them. They've grown up in Vanity Fair. It looks normal to them. They don't have any perspective. They don't know the change that's come. They don't know about the successive generations that have slowly but surely thrown off and ignored the teachings of the Word of God. And said that those things were just legalism that didn't apply. They don't know about the battle that has been fought and lost in many places. And they just consider it normal. John had the vow of the Nazarite on him. And from a small child he was taught. I don't think he was an unhappy child. I don't think he was an unloved child. In fact, I know he was loved. He was a wonderful answer to prayer. But I'll tell you this. He was a child that was taught that it's more important to please God than to please yourself. And I don't know many children that have been taught that. And, and I don't see many young people that act like they've been taught that. Whose concern is only to please themselves and to have fun in life. And my friend, that's not what life is all about. The vow of the Nazarite. Holiness unto the Lord. May the Lord help us. To not be theoretical Christians. May the Lord help us to throw away that second deck of cards, that second set of rules, and to live only by what His Word says. God is looking for godly parents to raise godly children in a world that is full of ungodliness. Are there any takers here tonight? Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father the word of God and we thank you for the testimony of the lives of the parents of John the Baptist for how they trained him in his home for the privilege that he had of growing up like that and we ask you to forgive us for the times that we have 
resented growing up in a Christian home, in, in, a, in a church full of believers, where separation and devotion is preached. If we have ever complained about these things, forgive us. And we look at the lives of these Zacharias and Elizabeth, and we wonder about our own lives and what you might be saying to us and what you might be saying to someone here tonight about their life, about his life, about her life. And we pray that these lessons will be burned into our hearts and that our lives will truly change and we'll be willing to make any change that would bring pleasure to your heart, our Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.